PT, pain and torture, physical terrorist. We've all heard the jokes, the public perception is always quite interesting, but it does beg the question, what kind of therapist are you really? Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back, podcast listeners. It's Paul and Dan here, joined today by two fellow Creighton graduates. And then we are privileged to have a University of North Dakota graduate, Tim Spooner, join us once again. Uh, Live from Seward slash Anchorage, Alaska, is Aaron Danielson with Advanced Physical Therapy. And then join us again back from the significantly reduced flood levels in Houston, Texas, is Andrew Walquist. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Dan. So, as Paul kind of alluded to, in the world of physical therapy, oftentimes we are perceived as pain and torturists or physical therapists or pretty tame therapists. So, the theme of this podcast is really going to be focused on what type of therapist are you? Are you aggressive? Are you conservative? Are you somewhere in the middle or does it really depend on how you are expected to react to the patient that's in front of you? So first question, how do you respond when that patient comes back after a session and says, man, goodness sakes, I was sore for like three days. What's your response to that? One of the things that first comes to mind for me is uh, if you look back at the sessions previously that you were providing treatment in and knowing about what tissue your targets uh, for your intervention were and what the expected healing timeframes are for some of those tissues can help guide someone in deciding if they were on track with their goals for the session. Uh, I think knowing the tissue and healing timeframes and what the parameters are for a patient can be really helpful. Um, one of the things I will kind of do before the patient leaves is talk them through what my expectations may be for a joint or body region, depending on what was done with with an exam. If there's an inflammatory response, we may expect that some of their pain may come on an onset of a delayed um, parameter, or they may feel that because the movement is restored, they're doing some other things. So I think educating the patient prior to leaving the session can be extremely helpful in uh, reducing fear and anxiety of symptoms that may come after a treatment. How do they respond if you do provide that education uh, on that session when they come back to like, well, thanks for telling me, but I still hurt like crap. So a lot of that in my experience comes from education on uh, their pain generator what may be part of their overall movement picture and the level of the participation or um, recreation participation that they're doing or just overall what their their movement presentation is. If a person is not willing to maybe adjust some of their recreation activities or they're not able to reduce some of the uh, workload, um, that may change what some of that presents with their healing potential. I think that's a fair response. Andrew, what do you, what do you think on this question? Um, I definitely do think as Aaron does, that education is, is a big key. Um, and I've, I view that 
for some patients that takes me a pretty far away. But there's some patients that I believe that I treat a lot like I treat my own five-year-old daughter. So not to demean the patients and say that I'm at, I'm I'm making them like a child, but when my five-year-old daughter, hear me out, Dan, hear me out, <laughs> because this is probably how, how I'd also treat you. So, you know. <laughs> okay, so when my five-year-old daughter gets hurt, what's the first thing she's looking for? She's looking for a little bit of understanding, a little bit of empathy, a recognition of what her what, of what her pain is. And so, honestly, a lot of times when my daughter takes a really big spill, pick her up, I kiss the boo-boo, and then we move on. So, now, don't get weird pictures in your mind that I kiss my <laughs> patients' boo-boos and, and make them all better. But, honestly, just from that really superficial, almost, I believe, primal instinct, a person that's hurting wants the recognition that they're hurting. So, I don't I, I definitely want to spend a little bit of time doing that, but I try to run away from that as quickly as, as I can, just like with my daughter. The more, the more I talk about pain with my daughter, the more she'll be focused on it. But the more I distract her, honestly, get her back to what she's normally doing, the quicker she bounces back. And I found that honestly really, really true with patients too. They come in and, and they say, hey, last, you know, the last session, I was, I was just absolutely trashed. Well, tell me where you hurt. Oh, I hurt here and here. I might actually go over and physically touch where they are hurting. Oh, here and here? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then, then I might go a little bit of an educational route and just be like, okay, well, you know, that's going to be a normal kind of response for, for what we're doing. And today, you know, we'll, we'll focus on, on some different areas and do some, uh, slightly different things and to continue to meet your goals. So take them out of that pain. So first I recognize what is hurt. I even touch what's hurt, won't kiss them like I kiss my daughter. But then ultimately, I move on and say, hey, this is, this is still what we have to do. These are the, the goals that you want to achieve, and these are the motions that we're going to do to achieve those goals. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think asking duration of how long they had pain. Uh, if someone's had three days of pain, like the example of this one was originally stated, that's kind of a long time for the inflammatory process of tissue remodeling. But if it was like, you know, three to six hours or for a short period of time after the first session, like, well, great. Okay, we did something. Um, I'm sorry that it was a little bit of a flare, but this happened. And inside your body, this was a histological process. Um, these tissue cells were remodeling. Um, and, and again, like Andrew said, acknowledging it, um, being grateful for what uh, the patient's feedback was to you as well. Um, and then uh, moving on to that session. That's good. I mean, I, I think where I get a lot of what I just mentioned and how I employ that is really after years of pretty much failing at it. I mean, there, there are some times when people would come in with, with a lot of pain and then I just talk literally like 10 minutes maybe about the pain, where it is, what might have caused it. And I believe what I was actually doing, I was trying to help, you know, I mean, I think my heart was in a good place but I feel like I was just catastrophizing their pain, you know, making them focus too much on it rather than the bigger picture. And that a rehabilitating body, you know, often doesn't do that in the most pain-free, natural, feel-good kind of way, that there are going to be some things that are going to be strained, pulled, you know, not severely, but there are going to be some natural ways that, that someone's going to go through a little bit of of discomfort to meet some of their goals. But I mean, again, depending on the severity of it, duration of it, you definitely do need to cater to those specific patients or, or adjust your plan of care appropriately if things really did get out of hand. 
I think you guys are hitting on some great points. Uh, and, and when a couple things come to mind, first off, um, I don't want that patient to be surprised they're sore. If they are surprised, uh, then that's my fault. I didn't, I didn't warn them. I didn't tell them what we're doing um, and alert them that that's a possibility. And so I, I really want to make sure that they understand that that is we are going to move. Um, I am going to maybe passively move them and do some things, and soreness is uh, an option. Um, I usually do not use the word pain. I may use discomfort in my description or talk with them. But when they come back in with symptoms, that is the time for me to sharpen my saw. And what I mean by that is where, what, what other activities did you do um, what other activities have you done in the last 24 to 47 hours? Uh, what uh, other loads have been placed upon that tissue? Is the discomfort in an area that I, I created, that I wanted to create? Is it, is it, in, the, uh, is it in, a, in the joint space? Is it uh, you know, too much of a load? And so I'm sharpening my saw to make the proper adjustments uh, to my program. Well, I think that, you know, between Tim, Aaron, and Andrew, what we all heard was the feedback from the patient in sharpening your questions about the type of pain, the location, or the type of symptom, excuse me, in the location, that's something that probably, I'm guessing a lot of our younger listeners haven't thought about, haven't seen, hasn't been part of their journey, probably, like Andrew mentioned, maybe because they haven't failed yet. They've gotten people better. They haven't potentially, or they haven't pushed them. They haven't, they haven't taken them to a point where the patient is actually going to fail in their movement or in their motion or in their strength. Again, barring any post-surgical precautions from a surgeon, but they haven't evaluated them at, a, at the right enough level to get there. And, and also along what Andrew said where he empathized but found that he was actually kind of magnifying the person's perception of it. And that has, you repetitively do that, I think that will change your treatment approach um, unless you find a way to dig out of it. Um, because that, uh, and Andrew, you can speak, I don't want to speak for you, but that, you know, if you're taking that all on every day, um, you, you're gonna you're gonna question your 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 confidence is gonna be questioned. You're gonna question what what am I doing? Yep, absolutely. No, you didn't feel the words out of my mouth. That that's happened a lot. And when sometimes in the past, I've especially caught myself of how many times I've used pain in a patient interaction. And honestly, once once one finger, well, sorry, once one hand is absolutely full, I think I've spoken about pain too much. Not to say I don't care about their pain, not to say that their pain isn't telling a story about what's going on in their body. It's important to appreciate that and recognize that, but not have that detract from your ultimate goal in helping motion. Because we all know what pain can do, can make someone want to stop, make them not want to move. And so kind of dissecting through that and really figuring out a lot of those kind of questions you're saying, Tim, which I love, sharpening the saw, you get to really figure out where then you can interject, at least on that day, and help them take that next good step forward. Yeah, and I was going to agree with what everybody's kind of said so far as some of the biosocial, biosocial factors of some of our patients. I'm not sure what 
um, clientele are in some of the clinics. But we have some patients who are getting to physical therapy late in the game of their condition, and they could be into a recurrent or chronic pain cycle and have had unsuccessful outcomes with either conservative or aggressive intervention, whether it be surgical or previous unfortunately bad PT experiences. I'm I'm afraid to admit that they do exist. Um, But if a person's been, you know, quote unquote failed previously and they're skeptical and they're anxious and they're fearful of moving and all of a sudden they're back into their discomfort or their pain again, that can be frightening for them. So um, knowing the, the patients and some of their other factors before you even start treatment and getting to know uh, maybe how aggressive or conservative you may be with even starting their care, let you know how the patient may respond. And then from there, you can tailor if you're going to ramp things up or stay on cruise control for a while. I'm curious, like Aaron said, it can be very scary for the patient when they have an exacerbation of symptoms. Do you guys, and I know Dan's example was soreness, but do you ever feel it is uh, okay or warranted or certain situations where an increase in the patient's specific symptoms is perfectly fine? So the exact symptoms they came in for. My thought is, particularly after an assessment, if you aren't able to identify a quote-unquote pain generator in the musculoskeletal exam or a movement exam, but they identify it later, um, that may help you kind of, okay, yes, it is something that we did. But then, again, like you said, sharpening the saw, questioning, what else did you do around the time of our session? Did you go back to work? Was it something that you did when you sit in your car? Um, Some of that can be good with further questioning. I'm going to answer that with an emphatic no. Um, In my assessment, yes, I would try and maybe reproduce the pain, um, but I'm always going to try and work from what the person can do versus what they cannot do. And so I'm going to work from what is successfully working right now. Um, And again, that's why I have to listen very closely to the the symptoms and the, the feedback they're giving me. Um, if I got too close to that pain generator. And that's, um, that is something that is a 180-degree reversal from how I began my career to where I am now. I, did not, I used to go right after the problem um, and not necessarily uh, understand what biomechanical forces I was applying to an already irritated and injured area, and I would make them worse. And... That is that is certainly not my approach at this time. What about a high-level runner who takes three, six, ten, you know, uh, repeti- repetitions of cycle before they can have their pain? Are you having them run or do their aggravating uh, activity prior to come in? Then, if if that's where. I need to assess them, but I, I obviously, um, if if that is happening at say mile three four, uh, when fatigue starts to set in, maybe or they start to develop a compensatory part, um, I may have them run on the treadmill and then video them at that later later mark, um, and and that's that that's you know just depends on your setup and what you're looking for, uh, and in terms of you know how how many how many episodes of treatment has this person been to before they got to you, and is this something that has been ongoing for a long time? Um, because if I need to get to that uh, high volume 
uh, high high level athlete. Uh, that there's a that's a that is a different setup that you have to you have to go at to really see where they're failing. Um, and I in as much as those people, uh, I I would almost wonder if their training is is as much of the problem as as a biomechanical fault. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I would say, um, you know, to to answer and, and comment a little bit, I know I said I was going to ask more questions than answer, but I just we can't. <laughs> we have intrigued him. Yeah, I know. My, 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 my hamster is running fairly fast right now. Um, <clears throat> maybe it's all that fresh mountain air that I got the last couple of days. I've learned a lot from my transition here to Spooner about finding the fault or the pain generator or whatever to switching that to educating the patient. Look, if, if I do something that causes a symptom, great. It gives me information. If I don't do something that causes a symptom, great. It gives me information. And sometimes that's hard for patients to... <laughs> understand and sometimes even more difficult for a student to understand because they're like, wait, you didn't find anything through your initial evaluation. Actually, I found a lot. Um, that's been fairly transformative for me. And then I can take that and be like, look, I figured out what caused your symptom. We're going to avoid that for a while because it really made you mad. And so in that sense, some people would say, well, you're being pretty conservative. And I'd say, well, no, I'm being conservative in that one area, but I'm going to be aggressive in some other place. So if I know that the sagittal plane makes their hip mad, but the transverse and frontal plane don't, I'm going to be fairly aggressive in the transverse and frontal planes, and I'm going to avoid the sagittal plane. Uh, now, going to that high-level athlete or the endurance athlete who Paul treats much more successfully than I do, I think in that situation, a lot of times it is their training that is causing an issue. And that's what happens at breakdown at mile 4, 10, 86, 122, um, is usually they've trained in one plane and one plane only. And so when you start to say, hey, let's unlock your hips and the sagittal or the frontal or the transverse plane or unlock your thoracic spine, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh. Now at mile whatever, 122, I don't have that symptom because I can operate much more efficiently. And I think also addressing those factors through the kinetic chain is another way to really um, improve your outcomes with patients too because you don't have to spend your entire treatment session on their one specific joint through the upper quarter or the lower quarter. Working through the trunk or the spine or adjusting the other planes of motion, like Dan said, is a great way to maximize your uh, ability to unload the structures that are, are their pain as well as optimize um, and perhaps reduce the load that may happen because of their motion patterns. Aaron, did you just pay me a compliment? Oh, don't <laughs> name it as what it is. Oh. You can rewind that and not let anybody else hear. <laughs> Nope, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have that for the rest of my life. Uh, for 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 you listeners, Aaron and I, we're not only classmates with Paul, but we also spent one year in orthopedic residency together. And 
she got to put up with me and two other boys. And while she fed us well, she had to put up with a, a little bit of nonsense, if you can imagine that. It was an enjoyable year. Learned a lot. <laughs> All right. So I think we can agree that we had a pretty fairly good discussion about how you respond to making somebody sore. Let's go the opposite way. What happens when a patient gets better and you do a little critical self-reflection and realize, hmm, I didn't do very much for that patient. What's your response and self-reflection and, and, and uh, analysis on how to change that moving forward or to explain that to a colleague or explain that to a student? Andrew, do you want to jump on this one first? Oh, I can, I guess. Um, you know, it's one of those things that if a patient's getting better, there's a whole lot of factors that can get them better. And there's oftentimes, sometimes that I know that I'm really not a, uh, wasn't a big piece of the puzzle in terms of getting them better. And I'm speaking namely, I mean, it's more crystal clear when you're dealing with someone with a high level of psychosocial um struggles and that and that finally whenever they are get that um, psychiatric eval or whenever they go see a counselor whenever those um, needs are addressed by their pcp or through medication that that's where they really start to start to turn the corner you realize that their pain where you might have thought had a huge musculoskeletal neuromusculoskeletal component to it truly is something a little bit more psychological and that's where I don't I don't like to completely downplay the role of physical therapy even in those instances but I do try to recognize my place within um, the participation with other uh, others in your healthcare team and so um, that's where I like to speak to my patients about where I can still have an effect on them. Now, while they might be getting better and maybe some of that is due to those psychological factors being addressed, I still point to the things that are definitely musculoskeletal that that we still need to achieve or something that could continue to be an issue with them a month down the line, a year down the line, if it wasn't addressed. So it's not like, okay, great, you, um, you know, now you're seeing a counselor that, and you're feeling better. That must mean this is all um, psychosocial issues. Uh, so you don't need me anymore. It's no, let's, let's appreciate how, how either through your referral or through um, their own referral or through someone else's referral that they got a little bit more help than what they needed. Still recognize your place and how you can help them move better. I mean, that's where we have the biggest corner on the market. That's where I think physical therapy shines the most. And when you see someone move, can you help them move a little bit better? So um, I do. Re- so to make a long story short, I do recognize I try to recognize my place in the success of other patients outcomes. And I also like to recognize the limitations in that and really to help direct where they should invest most of their time, but still being an advocate of how that patient should need to move in the in the now as well as in the near future. I think um, one of the first thoughts that came to mind when we presented this question was just uh, respecting the power of what the body can do to heal itself as well. Um, It's pretty remarkable when we talk about the body systems and how they come together and what healing potential um, can occur when that's tapped into. I think um, when we are doing conservative measures with our physical therapy interventions, it can be enough to kind of help the body do what it's designed to do. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of with the physical therapy 
profession is our education and what we can do to help people help themselves. Um, and I think sometimes even just with um, identifying a, um, a movement or a lesion or something and helping the patient understand what's going on in their, their body is enough to bring about patient awareness for their own self-direction. Uh, people are pretty motivated to not be in discomfort and to return to activities that they want to do. And so if we can help them along in the process, sometimes even just by coaching and encouragement and guiding them through, they're going to be successful without us putting our hands on them as much. They may not be as dependent on us as we may think from time to time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think it's a lot like the first question. Um, although it may seem like the opposite, to me it, it, it sounds very similar. And I take neither the credit nor the blame um, for someone's success or someone's discomfort. I am merely the facilitator of forces going through their body um, by direction, um, by motivation, by whatever. And as I'm continually analyzing what I'm doing with them, um, that gives me feedback and hopefully gets them better. Now, that's just on the physical aspect of it, but if I if I really look at that's that's the maybe the biomechanical the biochemical aspect of things that we're doing, but now that's going to also have a significant part on their on their mind and how they're feeling. Um, it's also going to have a significant part on their spirit and how they relate to their inju injury. So that mind body spirit aspect can definitely be affected through just that movement. And uh, I, I want the person to understand that no matter what they're doing, whatever their movement is, that I am merely facilitating that, giving them direction that they may not have noticed before to help them. But by no means do I have anything other than an outside influence on that. I am only a part of them getting better. They are the ones doing the work. Yeah, I often hear therapists in our clinic and Paul specifically, you know, and his technicians say, you did the work. We just provided a little bit of structure. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a really humble answer because all four of us know how brilliant Paul is. Um, but there is some truth to it because, you know, it, most of the time those patients are only spending a few hours of their life under our care in a week. And that means that they've got to do something outside of their time with us, which I agree that relates back to the first question. Well, sometimes they're doing things outside of us that's leading to their soreness. It's not necessarily something that we did, but, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, if, uh, I've got one hour and they've got 47 hours against me, I'm going to bet on the patient anytime that they could screw up no matter <laughs> what I think I'm doing. So I got, once I got over that part of being a clinician and accepted that, but learned to work with the other 47 hours, I could adjust my treatment plan accordingly. I could help them adjust their, their, their loads and forces into their body so that it all was part of their 48 hours. 
Yeah, I think a lot of patients are still going to have to go and do the activities that, you know, either are required of them because it's part of their ADLs or work demands, or they really want to continue with the sport they're doing. But if you can give them an option um, for a slight alternative of how they may go about their activity, um, to give them a successful route for their body to heal, that can be enough to get them on the right path to getting out there and doing better. And you, Tim, just talking about that makes me think of a something that you started with Spooner, a pretty catchy do, move, and groove structure to helping people get back to movement. And and I and that's where I really love the groove aspect, that, that third one that just makes people, that after you do an intervention on them and then you get them to move a little bit better, if you don't have something that's going to follow up, something that they can't carry with them for the rest of the 47 hours, that's where that groove comes in, that you teach them that – you show them that that new pathway that their body can take so that they can end up healing themselves. And I love what you said, Aaron, that that's something that physical therapy profession has done pretty well. And in the end, that's where we have to really make the patient shine and say, yes, this is something that you did. And because guess what? If they get this pain, just say in a month down the line after you've discharged them happily, they'll feel empowered that they can actually self-treat themselves rather than coming running back to you. And there's some patients that that I, I almost prepped them for that at, at, on their discharge day. And, and I just say, hey, well, the good news is, is that, that we found a successful road. So if this ever starts to come back, do you feel confident in your ability to, to get back to where you want to be? And if I did my job right, they all say, yeah, I feel really confident with that. And, and I know that if they go down that path and helping themselves, just like what, what, how, how we did it together in the first place, and they don't get very far, they'll still come back to me and say, okay, Whatever happened didn't, you know, whatever you did last time, this is not still working. There's something else at play. And then that allows you just to dig deeper in, in how that patient is moving and, and to hear the story of, of their body. It's usually where I, when, when someone comes back in and gives you that increased symptom thing, um, where I always like to see, I like to say, awesome, great job. And, and just watch their facial expression for when they look at me like, what are we doing? And I'm like, well, you, we learned something. We we learned what the body could and could not do. And you know, the uh, the the wonderful being that created this system, um, you know, that is much wiser than all of us. You know, put pain receptors and um, barriers in there for a reason. Uh, we 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 just need to listen to them more. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. We'll go, we'll go one last question. Since it is, are you conservative or aggressive? Let's talk about the go-getter who is post-operative. I know this is a discussion that we've had at Spooner when we created our ACL testing protocol or program. Excuse me. I despise the word protocol. So I apologize adamantly for just using that on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about how we manage the go-getter who's in a post-operative phase. And I don't care what the diagnosis is. Well, I think for me, the, the first thing that I try to assess and is, is, are they the go-getter? Can you identify that? And, and I think a lot of they patients, have a super and some high pain tolerance. I have a super high pain tolerance. <laughs> they're obviously, they're obviously female then because there's no such thing in the male species. <laughs> Did I really just hear that? 
That's fantastic. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> no, but so to really truly identify those patients early, and, and a lot of them, they really do know if, if they are the go-getter type. And so sometimes whenever you talk to them, if they're the super type A plus kind of personality and they're always kind of just fidgeting whenever you're first like meeting them, you know, you can you can even ask them outright. So you might be the kind of type that I rather than how that I have to push, I'll have to pull the reins back. And sometimes if I say something like that, the go getters just kind of smile and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I've always been known they go into some sort of story about how, how they just overdid it just the day before or the week before or whatever it is. And so for me, the first step is just through identification if they are a go-getter or not. Yeah, I think that's, you know, one, one area to start. And I think also uh, educating the patient on some of the uh, pros and cons of being uh, aggressive in a certain area of what risks they may take with their, their tissue uh, particularly if it's a graft or a tendon repair, what that ever that may be, knowing the tissue that the target um, is and what the repair uh, is a nerve, does it take two to four years? Is a bone going to heal in eight to ten weeks? Um, the collagen cell turnover takes 300 to 500 days for those cells to to manage and work themselves through. Like if educating people on Holy what they really stop. Maybe. Sorry, but it's evidence-informed practice. Um, I heard I was going to be on with really intelligent people, but I didn't realize I was going to have to bring a textbook. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Educating the patients on what their realistic outcome timeframes may be, um, and then kind of saying, hey, with this tissue right here, we've got this to deal with. But what you can do is such. Um, And kind of just helping them focus maybe their um, go-getter attitude into another another movement limb or in a different structure that's in a joint next to what they're doing, if it's a proximal hip to help strengthen a lower ankle repair, um, tailoring that a little bit to maybe where they can apply some of that and give them something to do if they're chomping at the bit. Yeah, I, I, I like where you're going with that, Aaron, because it, it really speaks to, you know, people come in and, you know, maybe they've had a traumatic injury and it's just one thing, but if it's an overuse injury with, you know, one of those really – high high motor individuals, um, they may have a lot of other deficit areas that can be aggressively treated. Um, you know, for instance, you know, if you've got a throwing athlete with a rotator cuff, uh, instability, tendonitis, partial thickness, full thickness tear, labral tear, all of those kind of being the same thing. Um, and they have a lot of leg work and hip mobility and core work that they could be doing while that tissue is healing and we're getting the um, inflammatory process under control or we're just facilitating something, um, uh, some healing process. So going away from the area, um, especially with an athlete, um, I, I just, it is really hard for me to remember a patient that had such a strong core and was so um, uh, flexible and mobile in all three planes to their core um, and still sustained an injury other than the traumatic kind. Um, So there's always something I feel that we can go and find in their system that will biomechanically come back and help that injured area. 
I love a lot of what I'm hearing with the educate the patient and kind of a fan of the treatment style of educate into submission typically. I'm, 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 I'm curious though, I'm hearing a lot of patient education. Have any of you guys tried attacking the doctor, whether it's a surgeon, whether it's a sports doc, um, but have them do yeah, some dirty work for you. <laughs> have them do some dirty work and help prepare the patient. So in that case, Aaron, I can let you lead off on that one. I think there's a lot of benefit of having a good relationship with the referring provider, whether that be a surgeon or a pain management physician, whoever you may be connected with that you're on the team with that patient. Um, Cause they have a lot to add on whatever they just did. Uh, maybe whether they saw it under floral or where they had it through the um, camera on their scope or whatever they did, they know what they saw in there and what, what their plan is. Um, and if we collaborate with them um, and kind of get people teamed up together for what the common plan is for a patient that can be really successful to help people um, have a united front for their healing progress. So have you ever gone to a, a, a shoulder surgeon who's done an arthroscopic repair for rotator cuff tear and you're like, so can I move their thoracic spine and their scapula and their other side? And they kind of give you the deer in the headlight looks of like, yeah, do whatever you want. Just don't do anything but pass a range of motion to that surgical shoulder. And then how do you respond to that? Uh, I feel like unfortunately we have a lot of education um, to our fellow care providers in the healthcare world on what we all can do. Uh, I think that it's a common response we get on times with maybe providers who haven't worked with you uh, as a PT prior, if that's your approach, um, saying, hey, well, I can work on this right now and I've got this. Um, what do you think about we're working through this kinetic chain? Is this based within what you've done? Um, I think they're more entitled or going to be more apt to refer more patients to you later because they know what, you, uh, what you're doing and that you're going to have some good outcomes for their patients as well. I'd like to know the origin of the comments. Um, so if someone says, don't do this, um, you know, am I in kindergarten? You're slapping my hands. Um, or did you just get sued because some therapist did some something they shouldn't have? Um, or you know, something in between. And it, it's amazing how open they will be with what caused them to put a protocol in place. And just like Aaron's saying, if you establish a relationship and you learn what they don't want, um, then I can, then I know what my parameter is and then I can ask all the questions that I can do. Um, so you want them in a sling for six weeks. Great. Um, any problems uh, that you have with me having them do a walking program or a balance program because they fell and broke their, fr their fractured humerus. So I was thinking of doing some balance training while they're, while they're healing in a safe, protective mode. Nope, that's fine. If I have them reach with the opposite hand to get the thoracic spine movement, is there any problem with that? Nope. So, but I've let them tell me what their fear and what they do not want to do is, um, but by no means am I lecturing them on what, uh, what they did surgically or, or um, what, the, what the healing process is. I think they know that. But what they don't know, when what's usually fairly evident, is what I can do to help them. Say, are we are we going back to Andrew's five year old daughter and treating the physician as they acknowledge their fear <laughs> and does this apply to all interactions for therapy? Quite possibly. Brilliant, Paul. 
Well, everything we uh, we're, are supposed to know, we're supposed to learn in kindergarten. So maybe some people just failed. Very true. Yeah. You know, I think that what Tim just alluded to there is it's fairly golden um, because he's not going into a physician or in front of a physician and spouting off all the wonderful things that he can do, but more, well, let me meet you where you are. And if... And then he, he's very clear about understanding his quote-unquote contraindications or precautions, if you want to use be, use that terminology. But then he takes it and he runs. <laughs> and he runs very fast and he runs very quote-unquote aggressive away from that site. And, and what I've seen and what he's built here has proven that time and time again, that people send probably earlier than they traditionally would because they know that we're still going to manage the tissue site, but we're going to be aggressive or we're going to truly help that person someplace else. Like whether it's, it's the balance because they had a fall or it's on their contralateral limb or it's in their lower extremities because they are an overhead athlete or they are a wrestler where they're going to spend a lot of time on their hands and knees. Well, I can still put them in a three point position and avoid their surgical arm, um, and, and get them moving and getting them sweating. And I've had a couple of wrestlers personally say to me, gosh, I didn't know I could work this hard without using one arm. And that's totally due to Tim's tutelage and watching Paul, do some crazy funny things with some MMA guys. And that's something that I really appreciate what you're almost talking about. You, you listen to the patient, you see what they need, you heed all the surgeons and all the other medical advice that you have, but then you still have them participate in activities that resemble the activity they want to get back to. Yes. They might not be able to go on all fours like they are in a, in a wrestling stance, but, why not, if they can't go on all fours, why not on three points of stability? And I think that's where you use a whole motto, mantra, like practice like you play. As long as you stay pretty close to how that patient plays, they're going to be engaged in your therapy. They're going to know exactly why, why you're doing what you're doing. They might even realize how they are weak in some other areas or really figure out why you're addressing certain areas that left the injured site vulnerable to that injury. And in the meantime, you are just taking them down a great path to where once that tissue is healed from that surgery, that then once that tissue is able to be integrated in the whole, in the whole movement, you have a lot of the other muscular friends, all the other joints that are ready to step up to the challenge to get them back to the field, the mat, the court, whatever it is. Yeah, I really like that analogy of foundation, and that's something I use very regularly with my post-operative ACL patients. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a relationship with a referring provider who uh, has three professional sports teams here in the Valley. And he operated on somebody a few years ago who returned to the football field post-op ACL much quicker than they were anticipating. And they, the announcers were just awestruck that this player was back. And some of the my patients that also had the same surgeon were like, well, why? They said, well, because we're all about setting a solid foundation and we don't start certain activities until that solid, that foundation is solid enough. 
my analogy back to the patient is, are you going to build a $500,000 house on concrete or on mud? Yeah, I have to agree with Dan again, and I hate to say that. Oh my loud. gosh, twice! <laughs> Holy <laughs> cow! Applying, <laughs> applying the right intervention at the right time, um, and knowing what you're doing as you um, it, uh, get that going is a, a key. I think um, you may start with post-op with manual lymphatic drainage and well leg exercises, and then through that progression, you get them back up to their um, return to sport plyometric or whatever that may be, but. Um, knowing what you're treating at that time, where they're at in their healing progression is definitely important. Yeah, and I, I think you I, I wouldn't give Dan the credit, Aaron. I, I think you kind of stated earlier when you're talking oh, about the, the, the healing process on, and some of those tissue or, or some of those physiological principles that we, we know. And I don't think it's important for us to tell the patient unless they're really in, they're really interested in that. Um, because otherwise they would have went to school for it. But what they want to know is that we have filters. Um, and those filters of tissue healing and things going through different time, and if we're just pouring the matrix of their body through that and we are applying force to it over time, we have a picture at 13 weeks what the matrix looks like in a complete MCL tear that's been stressed appropriately and now has rebuilt some of the protective um, proprioception and protective muscle function around it so that it doesn't get stressed again. And we have had that picture in our mind. We knew what it looked like at two weeks, at six weeks. And, you know, so we are, we are constantly when we do, when we design an exercise program, keeping that in the back of our mind. Yeah, absolutely. I, whenever you keep their overall return to function back in the uh, in the back of your mind, that really helps guide a lot of what you're going to use for the strategies of your intervention. You base a lot of the the principles of the of the tissue healing, and then you apply the strategies on how you want to get that person back, and then that ultimately becomes your your technique and how you're going to get, how you're going to facilitate getting them better. So well said. Well, and I, and I, and it kind of goes back to this topic, you know, are you aggressive or passive therapist? Well, you know, someone came in, they've been suffering with, you know, um, low back pain for 12 weeks. Well, let's see, they're not in an acute phase. If they did have a muscle strain, it's already healed. If it's a ligament strain, it's probably on the end in end stage and they're having consistent, persistent discomfort with an activity, I can probably be pretty aggressive if I know what forces I want to apply through that and also what is continuing to irritate those symptoms. Um, but I, I don't think I'm going to get them better by biochemically changing their body temperature. So that ultrasound doesn't work too well for you, huh, Tim? I spent a lot of years teaching my hand how to do circles, and uh, unfortunately, it took. I'm a little slower than the rest, so it took me a little longer than the most. Um, but I can admit to doing ultrasounds on body parts where I was probably just uh, affecting a little bit of uh, um, blood flow to the epidermis. 
Well, that's where I think we're learning a lot more on a, a patient's nutrition, their sleep, their hydration habits, their all what they're doing for themselves on the inside when we can't maybe necessarily move past the skin with our fingers or modalities as a, except for trigger point or needling, but what can a patient do for themselves so they can be aggressive in their Aaron, Aaron just talked about the next five podcasts right there. Yes, yes, she did. <laughs> Aaron, that means Love you get it. to join us again. Yeah. No, I, you, you are you are exactly right. I mean, when they say that the, uh, you know, the the person, the medicine is in the person's body already. Um, now you're taking it even a step further, saying, "Hmm, what kind of medicine are we going to put into that body um, through what we eat and drink?" Uh, She's so really you're, you're spot on. Cake. Yeah. Sometimes I've I've felt like with patient interactions, I can distill how I'm gonna treat them to three different categories. One is how, how am I gonna help them fuel? Because every single body that needs to move is, is to fuel and that's hydration, nutrition. Another thing is how am I going to encourage movement in them? So that's number two. And then finally, number three, how am I gonna help them rest? I feel like rest is one of those things that some people forget and how, and how a body needs to recover. Sleep, you know, what, what are you gonna, you can't just keep, keep on taxing all your tissues and expect them all just to to, to rebound. There, there is a thing called rest that the body needs as well. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, that is flat out brilliant. Those, those three components. And I, I want to touch really briefly before we conclude here about that component of rest. And, um, I've been fortunate enough to work with a couple very high level athletes and it's interesting picking their brains. Rarely do they ever quote unquote rest. They're doing active rest. So they're doing a low impact cardio day, or they're doing a flow yoga, or a triplane functional stretching day. It may not be that they're going out and hitting 5,000 baseballs or throwing 300 pitches or um, running 10 miles or cycling 30 miles, but they're doing something to help their body recover, but still have some sort of input into the system. So it's not a passive day per se. It's, you know, like I truly call it an active rest day. Um, And I've implied that with some of my lower level patients and found it to be very successful. And I, I appreciate what you guys are saying. I think you can take that even into the mind, body, spirit component where they could educate themselves on something or we can guide them towards information and, and, you know, so that we're, we're, we're feeding all of those components and, and Andrew kind of touched on them and, and it's like, all right, well, what about what would the mind do during a rest day um, to be still, to be calm? Um, what type of meditation? How do you talk to your patient to calm them down? You know, how do you, you know, and so it, you can use, you can do a lot of different things even during your treatment to affect these different areas um, and also just inquire how open those people are to exploring that. Um, and, I, and 
we call it rest, um, but I, I, you know, it, it is more of an active facilitation. Sometimes, you know, if someone thinks meditation is a passive process, try it. It is, it is work. I mean, you got you got to work to do that. But there is a lot in that mindfulness pr- aspect of meditation. Yeah, I love how you just tied in how you can use those three different components across all the whole spectrum of mind, body, spirit. And so on those days in which you with those patients that come in sore and maybe they do need more of the active recovery day, kind of like mentioning some of the Dan, the things that Dan was saying, but you can still aggressively attack their mind and their spirit and to where you can give that the movement that it needs for that day so that whenever their body gets that active recovery, as creative as, as you are with affecting a different joint or affecting their a different system like balance, you know, that, that you can still do a lot to get them ready because it's not just the patient's body we're preparing to get back into life. It's, it's their whole entire being. It's, it's who they are. And so if you, if you believe that a person isn't just uh, a body, that, that they have other components to them, using that as a useful strategy to, to get a person better, you'll find, in my opinion, a lot of different results and a lot more different avenues than, okay, you're sore. I guess today we're just going to do some East Eminice and call it a day. Um, that there's a whole lot more that you can do for that patient to leave them satisfied, to make them your patient evangelist, to, to have them go back to the referring physician and, and ultimately make them a better person. And then you also, um, you know, a gainfully employed individual as well. Yeah. And I, I, I think I, another phrase, oh, go ahead, Dan. No, this is, this is Tim, but I, I, I okay. learned, I learned this early on, um, when I was working you know, with more neural patients and maybe they came in and, you know, the, their affected side, um, was overstimulated and was just that fatigued that I couldn't get a lot out of them, man. I had half the side to still go work on. I could work on, on their, on their other side. Um, you know, and it just taught me a lesson, like, don't, look at just the deficit look at the whole person and do what you can and it was just a um you know branding into my brain imprint when i saw it early on in my career to say uh i I, you know i i I can go work on something else and it was just at that point it freed up my creativity to go um anywhere you know as far as as far as uh my treatment plans yeah, and I think that could totally take down the rabbit hole of what treating concussion and TBI is about, too. Um, what I was going to say um, is aggressive, sometimes I think you can consider it to be uh, specific and intentional. Um, you maybe don't have to do it do a lot with manual force. It doesn't mean that you have to bruise or harm someone. I hope that's not the case. But being very detailed and specific and knowing exactly what your intention is for your treatment or why you're doing it and how it fits into the patient puzzle. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're, uh, you know, hardcore. It just means that you're really specific and focused to what the treatment plan is. Aaron, I think you just brought up another podcast topic of intention um, versus intuition, and I, I think we could get pretty in depth on that for a, for a future podcast. Um, you know, we're we're. Uh, running a little bit longer than a normal podcast, which I'm okay with because I feel that the discussion we've had has been extremely valuable. 
um, on behalf of Therapist Motion podcast series, I do want to thank Aaron and Andrew for joining us and obviously Tim for joining us and Tim's continued support of this endeavor. Um, I definitely look forward to podcasting with all of you in the future. Um, you know, Paul and I very much appreciate your guys' treatment approaches, your brains, Aaron, all of your in-depth nerdy stats and, and histological no. things that I don't remember because I almost failed that class in PT school. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to say thank you for taking time out of your patient and personal schedules to join us. Um, it is our heartfelt, you know, sincerity. Um, I'm grateful that we all can be colleagues and work together and have the technology to be able to podcast across three different states. Um, so thank you for your time. Uh, you know, for our listeners, as always, you can reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Um, for any feedback, suggested topics, interest in podcasting with us from wherever you are out there in listener land. Um, you know, it's pretty fun to watch the stats on where people are downloading us, you know, all across the world and all across the United States. So we're grateful for that. Um, and we always, always, always welcome feedback. Um, so again, Andrew, Aaron, Tim, thanks for your time. Greatly appreciated. Um, you know, and until next time, uh, when we get to continue fun discussions, have a great night. <laughs>